Welcome back to this week's episode of the Deeper Cut Podcast, a podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church in Glassboro, New Jersey. It is great to be with you again this week. My name is Tim Pasek. I'm one of the rolling elders at Mercy Hill, and I'm joined as always by our pastor and my fellow elder, Phil Henry. Phil, how you doing? Doing well, Tim. Good morning. Good morning. We have our our coffee, we have our Bibles, we got the mics going, and it's a wonderful day to get into God's Word. It's always a good day to get into God's Word, but... It is, and I mean, we have, a, we have a, some rich Bible study on tap for our, our listeners this morning. I think it's going to be a great session. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm very much looking forward to it. I enjoy every week. I've really appreciated going through First Peter with you... Um, not, I mean, not only on Sundays while you're preaching through the book um, from our pulpit, but um, almost as much so these times during the week to circle back and think about these things and get to share, you know, some of the thoughts and questions that I have. It's uh, um, It's been a blessing to me, I say this often, uh, during these recordings, but it's been a blessing to me to have the opportunity to think more deeply, which is the whole point of the Deeper Cut podcast, to think more deeply about the sermon. And um, this is a built-in accountability thing for me. Uh, I get the benefit from having it on the schedule and showing up and doing a recording with you. But I'll just plug this right away for those listening. Um, I would really encourage you, whether it's on Sunday afternoons, or in the evenings with friends or your your spouse or your kids, um, to take some time and think about what you've heard from uh, the preaching of God's Word um, from the pulpit in His church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening service. Um, because there, there's, as, as I'm sure we're going to find out today, there's a ton more that can be mined and talked about and thought through um, and applied to our lives that we might be missing out if we're just simply hearers and not doers. Mm. Um, and so anyway, that's, um, that's a good plug, Tim. And <clears throat> I've said this before, good preachers make good congregations, but good congregations make good preachers. And I'm, I'm convinced that this is part of the dynamic we see with the Bereans and the apostle Paul who were more noble hearers than the Thessalonians, in part because they they dug into the scriptures that Paul had expounded and and verified, proved that what, to, to their own satisfaction, that what Paul was was preaching is true. Hmm. Now there's a, there's a way to hear a sermon that's so critical, and, and then quote Berea, that it's like, now, you know, like you're, you're, you're out to undermine the preacher right. and there's, there's a time and a place for that when, when a, a, a pastor and a sermon is just off the rails. But for the most part, it's a mutually interdependent relationship in which God uses the congregation, even when there's amens and, um, you know, help him, lords, and, <laughs> and uh, hear him. And, you know, the, the spontaneous comments that come from the assembly uh, are part of that. Um, some, in some churches more than others, and in some individuals are more of the, the amen species than others. Yeah, our church, our church is more of the crying baby type. Yeah, we, we have In those. terms of uh, audience feedback and participation. Right, right. We had a few of those squeakers on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, to get everybody um, up to speed, we, uh, as I've mentioned, have been going through First Peter... Uh, as a church since the beginning of this year, and we've continued this past Sunday. Um, we are in First Peter chapter 3, um, in verses 8 through 12, which is kind of wrapping up, if you will, uh, Peter's teaching on um, Christian household. It started back in chapter 2, verse 13, um, and then uh, I think you're... you're um, argument, Phil, maybe not argument, that's too strong of a word, but your point uh, in your sermon was this is now extending out beyond the 
familial local household of a Christian home to the household of Christ globally, you know, big C church, if yes. you will. Yes. So So you mentioned chapter two. Why don't we uh, dig in there and if our listeners don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one. Starting at verse uh, 10, we have of chapter two, we have the ending of of a section which really begins to my thinking around chapter 1 verse 13 so I I see the introduction of Peter uh, we have the greeting 1 1 and 2 and then his introductory comments 1 3 through 1 12 mm. and it ends with a, a really a unique statement in all of the Bible about the nature of prophecy and how we have in the prophets the gospel, and how we have in the gospel the prophets. Mm-hmm. And then Peter begins in earnest with his exhortation in one thirteen, which says what? Go ahead and read it. Yeah, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that therefore it, you, you know, as the saying goes, you always ask what it's there for. Yeah, what's there for, there for. And it's it's really beginning Peter's argument. And he's given you a, a foundation, a theological foundation for Christ, the gospel, and suffering in 1, 3 through 12. Mm-hmm. And from that foundation, he appeals to you to essentially work out your salvation in one thirteen. And that appeal comes to a close at 2.10, where we have a very rich statement. Go ahead and read 2.10. Now, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right. So that actually echoes back to the introduction in the mercy that we've received in God, from God in Christ. And then he transitions to his household section, which is 2.12 through 3.12, uh, rather 2.11 through 3.12. 2.11 and 12 serve as an introduction to the whole section. And they kind of say, they summarize everything in this next section of Peter. Go ahead and read those two verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I see you're reading in in ESV. Yes. My heading, Submission to Authority, begins at 2.13, but... I would give it a different heading, probably like conduct amongst the Gentiles or your witness to the world, maybe is a heading I would give it. And you've seen this witness theme that has gone throughout the last several weeks of messages. I would put it between 2.10 and 2.11. Do you see why that makes sense to me? Yeah. So just, it it, it is a reminder, those headings in your Bible that are in italics aren't inspired by God. They're they're an editorial choice. Yeah, more the chapter and verse numbers. That's true. That's true. Uh, So the chapter and verse numbers and the the editorial headings can obscure meaning sometimes. Mm -hmm. So there's a good reason for reading our Bibles in different translations or reading a stripped-down version of the Bible with no headings. Yep. Uh, reading it in Greek, if, if you're interested in that, that's a great... Uh, I'm just going to wait for the Phil Henry Bible yeah, to come out. No, that... And that'll take care of all these issues for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm speechless, no, it, Tim. It, 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 in all seriousness, um, two things come to mind quickly. Uh, you mentioned reading a translation that doesn't have headings or chapters or whatever. There are, there are in most all of the major translations, NIV, ESV... Uh, NASB, CSB, a what they would call a reader's mm-hmm. version of the Bible, which mm-hmm. literally is that. So it's First Peter, and you just get the text. Mm-hmm. There's no chapters, there's no verses. I found those uh, extremely helpful, um, particularly, and this is my second point, you've encouraged 
I don't, I don't know if you've encouraged me directly, but I've heard you encourage people multiple times, read the whole book in like a sitting. Right. Don't just read, oh, my reading plan says read chapter one, and then you stop, and then you read chapter two tomorrow. That's what, all well and good, but uh, I found it extremely helpful to read through the entire letter mm-hmm. at one, in one sitting, because then things sink together much better, and it's even I found it even more beneficial to do that without having the verses and the chapters in front of me, because then it's really like, well, I don't know what's chapter one and what's chapter two. I'm just reading the letter as Paul, right. or as Peter wrote it. So, right. anyway. That's good. Now, um, verse, verse 13 is an interesting verse. A lot of the commentaries will say, go, go ahead and read verse 13, and then we can talk about it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the we'll emperor... Just, we'll, just, we'll just pause oh, there. So every human institution, and then he lists several in the next couple of verses, mm-hmm. and then 17. So 13 through 17 sort of serves as an intro to the household code. Slavery being a human institution or servitude, you know, being and serving as a bondservant. I made that point in that message. But marriage is not actually a human institution in that same sense. Mm. It's not a, a way to arrange our economic transactions in a society or a way to get work done. You can get it done, you know, this way or that way with with this governmental system or that governmental system, with this economic arrangement or that economic arrangement, uh, even the exchange of money for services itself is, is, is an indication that we're dealing with limited, you know, sort of supply and demand, limited goods and services. Yep. And limits imply sin. There are no limits in an unfallen world um, other than, you know, God's limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and all that that entails. Marriage, on the other hand, is part of the created order. And I would say it's a human institution in the sense that it involves humans, but it's not man-made and sort of artificial in the sense that an economic arrangement between slaves and masters or servants and masters is a human institution. Now, do you agree with my thinking there? Because I have a follow-up question, but what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And my simple kind of agreement would would say, well, um, in the Genesis account, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And True. he creates Eve, and he creates that covenantal relationship between man and, right. and woman. So that wasn't like Adam went, hey, God, by the way, I really would like you know a helper here. That was God, even on a very practical level. That's God, hundred <laughs> percent, taking the initiative there and in in creating woman and creating the marriage bond there. So true, but Jesus goes on to say when he's asked about this hypothetical scenario where a woman marries a man who dies and has no children, and so according to the law of leverate marriage, her. His brother right. marries her, and this happens seven times. Whose yeah. wife will she be in yeah. heaven? You know, we've got you now, Jesus. <laughs> and he says, uh, you know, uh, as he says elsewhere, he implies here, you err not knowing either the power of God or the scriptures. You know, basically, is what he says there. Right. And he answers them by saying, uh, there is no marriage in heaven. So do you want to revise your comments about marriage being a human institution or how do you how do you take what you said which is very true marriage is ordained by God before the fall with the fact that it's not apparently going to continue at least in in the way we understand it in heaven Um I've... and if the listeners are wondering where is this going it there's a method to my madness <laughs> If the, listen, if the listeners are wondering that, so is yours truly wondering that. Yes, so, okay. Um, we're, all, we're all waiting for Phil to um, reveal his plans here. But uh, I would say that 
um, marriage um, was instituted before the fall, but has like everything else um, been, um, I don't want to say altered, but definitely it's, it's different De degraded by the, by fall, the fall, but not annihilated or destroyed. Right. Um, marriage is still a good thing. Right. We don't get in the pre pre fall Genesis account of a wedding per se or anything that we would associate with marriage other than here's a bond between Adam and Eve as a, a leader helper dynamic. And then really all that more or less gets fleshed out after, after the fall, right. In in the curses to both of their domains and their tasks and things like that. So I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I don't know exactly what it looks like in heaven. I certainly wouldn't go out on a limb and, and, and try to disagree with what Jesus is saying. I'm just saying that I don't know whether we really, our image of marriage now on this side of the fall is the same as what God had intended pre-fall. And I'm guessing that yes. in, in heaven, it's going to be much more akin to what he had intended pre-fall than... With no more... So that's perfect. So with no more... Uh, marriage in heaven no longer needs to accomplish what it would have accomplished had the fall not taken place. So part of marriage has permanently changed as a result of the fall, so that in marriage, so that in heaven, marriage is no longer uh, a reality like it might have been a reality, perhaps if the fall had never taken place. So we're mm -hmm. dealing with some hypotheticals, mm -hmm. which is appropriate as long as we recognize these are some speculations. Yep. So to bring it back to Peter, verse 13 cannot, in the same sense, serve to introduce the section of the household code on slavery as it does introduce the section of the household code on marriage. It can't because they're not the same kind of quote-unquote human institution. Right. Tim, I'm, I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> of the 10 commentators on my desk, nine of them make that mistake. It's basic Bible study. I mean basic Bible study. And you know we've talked about this a couple weeks now and even before the recording began this morning. This really bothers me. Mm. This really, really bothers me. That um, a high-powered, titled, credentialed, sophisticated, um, intelligent, I'll even say brilliant, well-funded, multiple, multiple administrative assistants, research assistants, publish publishing contracts, a CV as long as your arm, mm. will miss something this basic. And the, the only explanation is that there is an agenda amongst the elite theological school of commentary which brings to the text an a priori assumption that the biblical picture of men and women before the fall designed by God as complementary yet distinct in terms of authority and hierarchy, that, that that is out of bounds, out of the gate before we open even open the book. So... Um, the, the point being is that verse 13, we're in a structural conversation, does serve to introduce 13 to 17, sort of introduces the household code on servants, the household code for wives, and the household code for husbands, and to some degree, the household code for the Christian church, household, right. the church. Mm -hmm. But the church isn't a human institution either. Mm-hmm. I mean, the church is, is the body of Christ. It's the very opposite of a human institution. Yeah. The human institution comes about by natural birth. A non-human institution, a heavenly institution, comes into existence by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as people believe the gospel, that Jesus died for my sins. Right. <clears throat> and yet, these commentaries will say, the first word in our passage, chapter 3, verse 8, which is finally, 
proves that this is the last institution which is to be ordered according to Christian principles. So um, it's just inconsistent. Hmm. And so when you're outlining a passage, which is one of the things that a preacher needs to do, and a good Bible student will do, you're going to pay attention to, you know, where does it begin and where does it end? And so in my study, the passage definitely begins at 2.13. By the way, the, the, em- the emperor is even, even more a human institution than slavery because imperial rule, like slavery can be understood as the exchange of goods and services, as I was saying, and that's fairly plastic through all cultures. All centuries have this. Emperors come and go. I mean, they're, they're notoriously short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when he says honor the emperor, that's definitely a human institution. When he says wives submit to your husbands, I would say there's an aspect of submission that's clearly a function of the fall. Peter's saying, look, if you're a Christian wife married to a, a pagan Roman husband, and if Roman society expects a woman to be quiet and deferential, you're probably wise to do that. Mm. It's, a, it's a missionary strategy. Yeah. And so there's an aspect of that that's true. Yeah. But two weeks ago when I preached on that, three Sundays ago, the point was to say um, there is also an aspect in which a woman in submitting to her husband, believer or not, is fulfilling her God-given calling to image Christ in his submission to his father. So it's that sort of balanced, may I say, balanced nuance that is lacking in so many commentaries on these three or four sets of household codes that we're really looking to uh, encourage our Bible readers, our congregation, uh, other preachers. I'm hoping that that they can see some of the, the wisdom in Um, slowing down, setting aside your agenda, just letting the the scriptures Mm. speak. So that's the structure. 2.13 to 17 is an extended introduction with a little bit of an excursus on uh, submitting to the emperor. And then 2.18 to 25 is a section on slaves, with 2.21 to 25 being that kind of gospel center Mm -hmm. that all the household codes wind up appealing to one way or another. And then 3, 1 to 6 is wives, 3, 7 is husbands, and then 3, 8 to 12 is the church. And that ends the big second section of 1 Peter. Mm. I'm uh I'm gonna throw this. Out. I, 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 this is an on, honest question, and I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. But does that pass section then between two eleven and three twelve can that be viewed potentially almost like a chiasm, where that part about Jesus in the middle is kind of the the mountain by chiasm? I should probably qualify that. Um, that middle piece is like the top of the mountain and the sides run in parallel. It's a in great question. It, 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 um, in terms of like real estate, it's situated in the middle. Yeah. So that, that draws your attention immediately. Um, you would want to see some, it's, it's chiastic like key being the Greek letter X. So, we have the same thing in the beginning and the end, and then you go one step in yeah. in the beginning and one step back from the end, and you have mirror images, and and that same sort of mirroring works its way to the middle, which winds up being a, a literary, I'm defining chiasm. It's, yeah. a, it's a literary device different than an, a normal Western American outline, where the most important thing is at the end. Right. In Greek, they can arrange the argument so that the most important thing is in the middle. That's what a chiasm is. Yeah. 
So it's chiastic-like, but yeah. you would need to see some verbal evidence. And I don't, I don't There's so much see there. the verbal evidence. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're just making it up. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mean to be like push. That's why I said it was just. Kind yeah. Of... No, it's it's a good question. Um, but so why does two twenty one to twenty five seem so prominent? It's long. It's longer than the instruction to the slaves. It's almost as long in terms of words as the instruction to the wives. It's certainly longer the instruction to the husband. So it's long. Um, it has, it's, and in my Bible, it's, I guess it's not, it has a poetic quality. Some, I've seen in some scriptures, they set it out in italics. Oh, okay. There's a, there's an, an, a notion that it perhaps may be fragments of an old hymn that was used in worship hmm. that Peter's quoting. Hmm. Has a rhythmic quality, so it's poetic. Uh, it, it almost has meter, you know, it has a cadence when you read it. That's different than kind of the the instructional cadence of two eighteen and nineteen and twenty. Um, when he when he starts talking about Jesus, it becomes almost a poem. Yeah. So it stands out for a number of reasons. It's extremely vivid. Yeah. He's quoting the Old Testament. It's unlike any uh, almost. The only thing that's close is the hymn in Philippians 2, who being in the form of God, which also is a hymn, by the way, mm -hmm. being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's relevant to our sermon because that's where we see Paul exhorting people to have the mind of Christ. Right. So it's prominent for many reasons besides a literary construction. Right. Um And that it would be right in the middle of the house. Like it just even physics, phys it's in the middle of the section. Yeah. Does make me th want to say everything in this house, <clears throat> everything in this house needs to be defined by the kind of voluntary sacrifice that Jesus models for us. That's a great, great goal, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, it's great. It's a great goal, but it's even greater because it's available to us because of, because of it. Right. Yeah. So it's, I did not say that eloquently, no. but, um, let me try a second time. Uh, it is a great goal but we are able to achieve that goal, so to speak, because of Jesus. Right. So the goal isn't just to, to be like Jesus, but it is we can be like Jesus because of Jesus. Right. So the, the picture it paints of the work of Christ becomes the engine of our ability to hmm. attain mm -hmm. to that picture. So the very thing that we are aspiring to becomes the fuel and the means of our accomplishment. <clears throat> Peter's, uh, the other thing I, I wanted to do on my, in our little Bible study section here, Tim, if I could pivot, mm -hmm. is just note how many other scriptures and biblical ideas are echoed here. And I'm going to send you on a couple of Bible verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, uh, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. That, and that's good. So... The praying for those who persecute, where do you see that, or do you see a tie-in with uh, Peter? Um, do you want specifically in the in our this in week's our, passage? Yeah, in, in this week's passage, right? Yeah. 
um, do not, uh, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Amen. How about Ephesians 4, 1 through 3? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You say one through three? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's strongly resembling our passage, isn't it? Yeah. Same, same, a lot of the same words, too. Mm-hmm. And then on that same chapter, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Tender-hearted is, is a mm-hmm. word that shows up in both. Mm-hmm. And I had trouble with this next reference because there are so many connections, it's a little overwhelming. But Romans 12, 9 to 18, that's a little bit of a long passage, but I think it's worth it. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a passage worth committing to memory. It's so rich. And... Clearly, Peter and Paul are, I won't say reading the same book, but, you know, reading the same book. <laughs> they're consistent. Yep. But they're, they're, they're not really dependent on each other in any direct way. Like, Peter's not quoting Paul, and Paul isn't quoting Peter. But they're both, they both seem to be quoting Jesus in a creative way that's suitable for the letter that they're writing. Uh, Paul's longer. And, of course, we have many more letters by Paul than we do by Peter. Peter's more concise, uh, but unique in the way that he makes his argument, linking it uh, and basing it as he does on Psalm 34. So, um, clearly, we have a multifaceted picture of the importance of this single-mindedness or, or unity, like-mindedness. Mm. Uh, both in Peter and in Paul. I'm going to give you one more reference from within the letter. Okay. First Peter uh, 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Wow, that's a great one, Tim. Yeah. So the picture here is of, of a diaspora church sprinkled throughout the Roman Empire, uh, tempted to retreat, tempted to give up, suffering for their faith, dealing with the pressure of conforming to social norms around them. And um, you know some of these precious sisters are in mixed marriages, married to unbelievers. Some of the husbands are struggling with kind of a, a Roman patriarchalism 
which is unsanctified, unholy, and despicable. And God is calling them to all, all of these men and women and the members of their households to a countercultural conduct, especially as they gather as the church, that would be so radically different than anything around them that, as we'll see next week, people can't help but ask, what is it about you people? Hmm. Hmm. You are so weird, but I love it. <laughs> I'm almost afraid to believe that such relationships are possible. I want to believe that, that that's possible. I, this is what someone might be saying, you know, who's looking in the window at Thanksgiving dinner, you know, kind of a, 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 in that idea. Mm-hmm. Peering through the, the, the living room windows of our gatherings, and seeing us with this sort of self-subjugating, God-exalting, deferential love towards one another, insisting that others take the priority over ourselves. I, I, I wish, I'm thankful our church has many of these qualities. I wish we had more. Yeah. You know, as, as I thought about and this is on the preacher's heart, you know, how are we doing as a church in this area? Whenever the text, I'm preaching to a group of people. Um, How are we doing? I think we're doing well in many areas of this. We had a fellowship picnic yesterday afternoon, and and I think one of the brothers said how how, uh, providential it was that this was organized after the Sermon on Unity. I don't know whether you said that, Tim, or someone else. So that's a great observation. Uh, we asked, you know, what, what makes it a good gathering? You remember some of the, around the circle, what some of the comments were? Yeah, well, I remember my comments, so I can at least share that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, uh, the youngest member of our church who was there is probably one. Not counting those in utero. Right, and the oldest is... Almost 90. Pushing 90, yeah. Um, so multi-generational. Um, we had um, extended family members from those in our church, both members and regular attenders, uh, who were invited to come. Uh, one of the um, little ones in our flock uh, just providentially was celebrating her birthday yesterday, and so... Um, I don't know if you knew this, but there were a couple of the, the ladies had pieced this together and went, we need to get, we have to get a cake and we have to get candles. Okay. And that was not like, oh, we're going to plan it that Sunday because it's, it just was a coincidence. It's just, but it was, well, once, once that became known, spring into action and we're able to, to sing to her and bless her and her family. So I think just those couple of things, um, I mean, I could go on and on. We had a kickball game. There were three-year-olds playing kickball. Yeah. You know. It was great. Your, your, um, your mom hit a single, I think. She did. Hit a single. With the pinch runner. With the pinch runner. I think it was her great-granddaughter was the pinch runner. It was. So, you know, like, pretty... what more can I, do I need to say in terms of, you know, um, the successful fellowship time that, that we had yesterday because one of my the hats that i wear one of my many hats tim is head of staff this was not mentioned but i'll mention it now i didn't plan it <laughs> i had nothing to do with that's it. why it went so smoothly phil i i couldn't <laughs> agree <joking>. more <laughs> it's like you know there's the midas touch and then there's phil's touch <laughs> um so it had its air of spontaneity about it and kind of, I I love, I love it when I hear about ministry from other people, Mm. you know, gospel conversations, gospel ministrations taking place Mm -hmm. between two people. And I had nothing to do with it. It just kind of the movement of the spirit in the body of Christ. So, yeah, I think back to my point, I think our church models unity well in many ways, but you also know we've had, 
half a dozen families over the last six to 12 months either struggle with their connection to our church for various reasons or or outright leave the fellowship mm-hmm. um, not always for great reasons and um, that's not to say I'm 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 angry or upset or or have bear, bear any malice but There's a few ways to leave a church that you can celebrate, and there's a lot of ways that you can leave a church that it's really hard to celebrate. Mm-hmm. So those are instances of, of aspects of our church that where we, we need to take a good look in the mirror and say, how are we doing it at Unity? Yeah, I mean, the simple my simple response to that, Bill, is Peter still... Sp- speaks truth today mm-hmm. to our church to all, all the every christian you know so um yeah and we have we have a lot to learn i think at mercy hill we have a long way to go um i presume that's probably the case for all the <coughs> churches in the area and it is um i know i have a long way to go within my home in that regard too uh even the unity you know uh, the unity that he speaks about here is obviously we talk about the christian household meaning christ's household as his church but that would apply it's within inclusive. our, yeah, in it's our households of, as well so nuclear families right um i think sometimes what ends up happening in the household of christ as his church is a outworking of what's going on within the households of the people in the church Good point so um that's not making excuses or saying well we're gonna throw our hands in the air because we we can't do anything it actually i would argue that that means let's roll up our sleeves and we need to get to work not meddling or something like that but in pr- fervent prayer and loving humble compassion for those in our midst within the church who are struggling in their parenting or their marriages or their jobs or whatever, because that, that does have an impact on Christ church. I think in our, I don't know if I want to go say so far as say our society, certainly in the, the waters we swim in, in South Jersey, the nuclear family and maybe even the extended family have like an elevated platform and I don't think that it's all bad, but I do think it, it can become a, a stumbling block at times. And it certainly makes work within the church more difficult, in my opinion, if I could be so bold as to say that. So, you know, again, not excuses, just observations. Sure. Um, but yeah, so I appreciate what Peter is offering us here as being part of, you know, you you gave the description of the the diaspora church i'm like well you're just talking to the church in the united states right now like it's it's true (laughs) there's a lot of similarities there um yes a couple of thoughts as we maybe bring the show to a close today you heard in my message that i quoted from ed Clowney's commentary mm -hmm. on first peter Mm -hmm. and i i did that for a couple of reasons one I don't need to be an expert on everything that I say, and it's important for the church to know that. I'm not trying to be. And his explanation of those five virtues was just extremely uh, insightful as well as concise and vivid. And so um, I wanted the church to know I, I trusted it and I appreciated it. Um, it also happens that Ed Clowney was my internship supervisor in seminary and the father of the woman and her husband that we rented an apartment from in seminary, Peter and Rebecca Jones. So Rebecca was, was born Rebecca Clowney and uh, Peter and Rebecca continued to be mentors and uh, spiritual mom and dad to Polly and me to this day and their children are our friends 
and one of their ch children, Eowyn Stoddard, is married to David Stoddard, who's a missionary that we support. Mm. So there's some interesting connections there related to Ed Clowney that are meaningful to me, but not necessarily to the church. So mm -hmm. I thought I'd share that with you. Some of those things I think you know, and, mm -hmm. and our listeners might find that interesting. But mo more to the point of our, our text, Ed Clowney is, when I say famous, I mean, he's, he's kind of a big fish in a small pond, but famous in our circles in the 80s for having almost brokered, this is sort of Calvin style, uh, truce or an agreement between the PCA and the OPC to become one body of believers as opposed to two different denominations. And this was a time of mergers in the Protestant church, mm -hmm. particularly amongst Presbyterians. So in the 80s, we have the joining and receiving of the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, known by the acronym RPCES, a.k.a. the Bible, the old Bible Presbyterian Church, and that's important here because here in South Jersey was kind of ground zero for that branch of conservative Presbyterians in the early to middle 20th century. So the RPCES was joined and received by the PCA in a beautiful demonstration of Christian unity. And maybe you recall from your, when you were examined as a ruling elder, that in that merger, we receive Covenant College and Covenant Seminary as a denomination, which are um, great institutions. I mean, they're not without their faults, but um, I had a daughter that graduated from Covenant College and uh, friends that have come out of Covenant Seminary and friends that, that minister there. At the same time, um, the, the liberal church, PCUSA, was merged in 1981 with another branch of the, the progressive liberal church to become the PC parentheses USA. And that entity, you know, only in Presbyterianism is a parenthesis important for your identity. <laughs> so the PC parenthesis USA, close parenthesis, was created in 1981. And the, the third merger, which didn't happen, was between the PCA and the OPC. And I remember when I heard Dr. Clowney tell that story, and I've only told kind of the a tip of the iceberg there, um, thinking in my mind, uh, God, if you would use me to finish the work that Ed Clowney started, that would be wonderful. Mm. Now, I have friends in the OPC, but I'm not actively, I don't have a, like an active 10 hours a week towards PCA OPC Unity Project, but it remains something kind of in my mind, I guess, and in my heart, that uh, there, there are certainly good and godly reasons for us to maintain distinct missions. We are very close as a denomination. Uh, we are what's called fraternal. We have fraternal relations, which means that we share almost everything in common, and so we treat one another as, as we should, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But a more... Um, a more overt institutional unity, I would I would consider to be um, a gift of God to to the kingdom of God. Mm. So um, that's partly why I quoted Ed Clowney on being like-minded, just as an appeal to us to continue to be comfortable in working with people that are different than we are. But in this case, the OPC is not that different than the PCA. I mean, there are differences, and we could go on and on about them. I mean, it's a favorite topic in our little uh, theological circles to highlight the differences between the PCA and the OPC. But um, I see what we have in common to be of far, far greater significance. I, I think that'll be very helpful for a lot of our listeners to hear. Um, I, I dabble in, in those kinds of podcasts and, and things like that. Um, so I, I appreciate, I, I always appreciate Phil, your um, gentle, 
pastoral pushing or pulling one or the other of our, or both <laughs> of our church um, into um, Christian unity. And I say that in the sense that, that you're talking about mm-hmm. with the rest of Christ's church outside of Mercy Hill. So, you know, we don't, we don't need to get into it, but your, your Spurgeon Circle, you know, and things of, of that nature where well, you're, I, you're setting an example for yes. the church. Yes, so um, it wasn't accidental that I prayed for Joy Community Fellowship and Calvary Hill Assemblies of God and their pastors by name in the pastoral prayer on Sunday. So um, that's me reminding me as much as anything that I don't do that enough. And that these are these are good men. These are good pastors. These are good churches, not not perfect churches. But uh, what we have in common is far greater than what divides us. And the world should know that. And our church needs to know that. That these are these are um, these are friends. These yeah. are Christian friends. Yeah, I think uh, this will be my last my last comment. Um, we, the church. Um, and I'll, I'll just speak for kind of maybe church in the States, because I, I don't know, abroad. But I think we've fallen into this temptation that goes along with our culture where we take sides, right? You, you actually talked about this a little bit um, in your introduction remarks yesterday. But we take sides... Um, we have this consumerism approach to things. What am I getting out of this? Oh, I don't fit. You know, um, I struggled a little bit with that personally. Um, not at, not at Mercy Hill, but you know, in past experiences. But I think if we if we actually read Peter's letter and took it to heart and thought more about the attributes that he's calling us to in terms of unity of mind, sympathy, tenderheartedness, brotherly affection. Um, What's the last one? Humility. Humility of mind. Humility of mind. Yeah, humble mind. We would be far less concerned about, I don't like this about my church. I wish my church did this more. And it'd be more about how do I allow God to use me in my church? Hmm. So rather than jumping ship or, you know, um, we we hear the term a lot like church shopping. Mm-hmm. Like I just moved to the area. I'm going to go check out a bunch of churches, figure out which one fits me best or where I fit best, you know, who is the best ministries or what, you know, I like the worship music or, or whatever. What if we went to the church next door as long as they're preaching the gospel I went this is my church and roll up my sleeves you know um, I said that hypocritically because I drive 10 minutes to get to Mercy Hill I used to drive 30 so I feel like I've made steps You're making progress I've made Tim. some progress um, but jo- Joe and Amanda walk to church on Sunday yeah they win they win they win <laughs> Um, you've, you've walked to our church. I've walked, I've ridden my bike and, uh, uh, Will and Sarah's mom, she, she rode her bike to our picnic yesterday, mm-hmm. which is fun. Mm-hmm. So we've got some hyper-localism going on. We, yeah. we definitely yeah. need to work on it more. You know, one of my uh, dreams is that we would become expert lovers in the Chestnut Ridge community. And by that, I mean 10,000 hours. I'm just throwing that number out there. And you saw me yep. in one of those, uh, in that kind of a vision document I'm working on. And the thought behind that is, let's let's really see what we can do to make an impact mm-hmm. in this one little spot of the planet where we've been providentially located. Yeah. And there are a couple of churches in that neighborhood that really need, we need to, work on making ourselves known yeah the the and the, the emphasis there being on the we because with something like the idea of ten thousand hours is not a phil henry thing no you know I, it 
it's no single person. Yeah. It's not even two or three people. Right. It's the whole that is community. that is the body it's of a collective Christ investment. being activated for the sake of Christ. So that was what I was getting at. Not, not so much like oh, we better all buy houses in Chestnut Ridge, as wonderful as that would be. Um, but it's what are we giving to Christ Church? Not what are we getting from Christ Church, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. right? And I think we. It's almost like baseball teams. It's like, oh, you know, um, when the Phillies win or the Sixers win, I win, you know. Well, when Mercy Hill does something great, then then I win. But I should feel that way if Joy, you mm-hmm. know, does something great. Because mm-hmm. we're, all, we're all the church. So um, rather than having these invisible lines of division, even within our denomination... You know, mm-hmm. we go to Presbyterian meetings. It's like, oh, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Well, we should all be working together to advance God's kingdom as much as humanly possible, not working against one another in mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form. So anyway, Amen. I'll get off my soapbox. But No, that's that's a good soapbox, and I think it, these are words that need to be heard, and uh, hearing your heart as an elder in our church is uh, touching, and it's powerful. And you have been given a, a unique platform and one that you use well, and I'm, I respect you for it. Thanks, Phil. Just following your lead. Oh, thank you, brother. <laughs> don't, don't, don't make any missteps, because you're just going to yeah. lead me off the cliff with uh, you. So yeah. no pressure. Okay. Um, we definitely did not cover it all. There's <laughs> a, lot, a lot more, as usual, that, that could be said, but um, I do hope that this was helpful I know it was certainly helpful for me, but I hope it was helpful for our listeners, um, those in our church, and, and maybe if you're tuning in as a as a listening visitor or a listening guest. Um, a lurker? Know, what's that? Is that a lurker? A lurker? Well, I wasn't going to use the L word, but um, lurker. Um, but yeah, I, I hope this was Come out of the shadows. <laughs> Make yourself hopefully, known. Hopefully Join, this is come helpful to the for, campfire. for those listening to us. Um, uh, just, you know, have a frank and, and open conversation about this. We uh, often peek behind the curtain. We often don't have an agenda per se set up, and we certainly don't know exactly where the Lord's going to lead in terms of these conversations. So we just kind of um, talk about those things that God is putting on our minds or laying on our hearts and uh, we pray that that's, that's helpful to you. So as always, if you have comments or questions or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and uh, any other thoughts from you, Phil? No. It's been a, a great, great session this morning. Thank you, Tim. What do we have, uh, maybe sneak preview, what do we have on tap? And no, not next week, because you're not preaching this upcoming Sunday, but the next sermon in two weeks on first peter um we're we're getting into that famous passage where we are to always be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that lies within us mm. when someone asks but with gentleness and respect so we're going to open up that great apologetics verse it's a uh, it's profound and uh potentially life transforming when people really get a hold of it awesome awesome well if you're, um, if you're the A-plus student and you want to read ahead and think about it and maybe even circle your calendar and reach out to me or Phil and join us for that conversation in a couple of weeks, we would love for you to be here with us. Um, but nevertheless, we do hope that this time um, was, was well worth your hour or so listening, and um, we pray that uh, God would use it in your life and in your home um, in your marriage, if you're married, or in your household, if you have kids, and most certainly uh, in his church to bring about the unity that he's called us to and that he makes happen, you know, even even uh, even as we do our best to uh, to try to prevent that from happening. We can't stop what God is is doing and being part of his covenant community is something that he's done for us. So thankful for that and um, That's all we have today. So we'll wrap it up. Have a good rest of your day, your week. Um, God bless. We'll talk to you next week.